Good evening and welcome. We are uh, having a special Wednesday night session tonight, and uh, hopefully we've learned a few things from last week. I, uh, I did a little watching of the video last week after we had our, our live stream first time on Wednesday night, and most of the time it looked like I was completely asleep. I was sitting up on the stage, and uh, it was my first time, I guess, doing this, so I'm, I'm hopeful to be a little more um, animated tonight. Uh, and uh, hopeful that we can uh, do a little better, learn a little, progress a little. Uh, we're sort of headed into the unknown here with all these different uh, technologies that we're having to learn in different situations. Uh, now, some of you may know the, the men's study that we normally have on Thursday morning, we're actually going to try to do tomorrow over Zoom. And uh, so some of us are even willing to experiment with new technologies. I was amazed that Jim Shiflett was actually able to get on Zoom that was awesome. We were only able to see half of his face, uh, but it was exciting to see Jim on there. So I appreciate everybody uh, kind of being willing to uh, rally around what we're doing. I know that this is not ideal, uh, but in the absence of being able to be together physically, uh, trying to find ways for us to be together and encourage each other and keep in touch with each other. So uh, we're going to start tonight. I'm just going to uh, give everybody a minute or two to get logged in and, and signed on. I know we've had some trouble with that uh, over the last couple of times we've done this. Uh, but if you are ready, we're going to be starting in Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 is where we're going to start tonight. And just so you know, we have a special treat tonight. It is a special Wednesday night edition of our Q&A. Usually it's on a Sunday morning. Uh, and not only is it a Q&A night, but it is coronavirus edition of the Q&A. These are questions you have given me about Q&A, uh, about coronavirus. And uh, as this situation has developed, I've gotten more and more questions from, from you. And uh, it's a long time before we have the second Sunday morning. So it seemed to me like this is a good time to just address some of those things while they're fresh on our minds. And uh, so for those who are new to our group or you're new to this situation, uh, what a Q&A is and what we do with a Q&A is these are questions that members of this congregation have submitted to me and uh, I've taken some time to formulate a response from the biblical perspective, and we're going to be doing some Bible study with that uh, so that I can present what I believe the Bible would teach in answer to these questions. So uh, all of these questions, they're not necessarily about coronavirus, but they're about sort of the biblical dimensions of that. So I just want to say, if you uh, are watching this video later and you say, oh, Q&A on coronavirus, and you're expecting me to give you a bunch of facts about coronavirus and whether or not you have it and that kind of thing, that is not what this is. So you can just keep scrolling to something else. Uh, this is about God's perspective on some of the questions that are raised from a biblical uh, perspective about uh, coronavirus, and then about how we deal with this as Christians as we have to uh, discover what are we going to do in terms of worship and that kind of thing in the, in the wake of this disease. So I think we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, the first question that I've received is, is it possible that God is using plagues to punish people? And uh, the, the question goes on to punish for things like corruption or evil. And this is a question that focuses on the source of the virus. Where is this coming from and why? And so, since we believe in God, we understand that, that in the cosmic view, God certainly is in control of everything. So, is it possible that what's happening is that this virus is spreading as a punishment, sort of like the plagues that you learn about in the Bible? Now, I want to begin by saying, God clearly uses plagues like that from time to time. He has done that in the past. So, you have here Leviticus 26, Leviticus 26 and verse 14, and you can see the way uh, God's going to talk about the, the relationship between spiritual commitment to him and a physical punishment, particularly here, different things that they're going to suffer. 
Leviticus 26 and verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins and I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So if God's people don't obey him, you see it right there. God promises panic, wasting disease, and fever. That's verse 16 particularly. He also says things like uh, the land won't produce. Uh, You'll be struck down by your enemies. There'll be no rain. So what he is saying is there will be real physical punishments from spiritual misbehavior. They reject God and they suffer for it. So you see that throughout the scriptures. You see that in the plagues in Egypt. In Egypt, Pharaoh stands up to God, says, I don't want to obey God. I don't know his voice. I'm not going to do what he says. I won't let his people go. And so God sends plagues. And one of those plagues is an actual sickness, the the plague of the boils. And in fact, in our reading that we've just been going over in our daily devotionals, we went through the golden calf incident. And at the end of the golden calf incident, it says specifically that God sent a plague among his people. That's uh, Exodus 32, 35. And sometimes it seems to be a targeted thing where God has a point where he sends the the sickness to create a certain spirit in his people. So let's go over to Amos chapter 4. In Amos 4, you see this, and God's going to sort of acknowledge that he is responsible for a lot of different things that have happened in the world and that he has a point behind it. He has a goal in Amos chapter 4. There's a lot here, uh, a lot of different things God sort of uh, takes credit for, uh, but all of them, you'll see the constant is that he has a goal for them in regards to his relationship with them. Amos 4 and verse 6. Amos 4 and verse 6 says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. So that's the idea of famine. I withheld food from you. I also, verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So this is a prolonged drought or uh, uh, where there's not enough rain. Verse 9, I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So these are sicknesses among the plants and then the, the devouring locust. Verse 10, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. So here in verse 10 specifically says a pestilence, a sickness, a disease, and then he also talks about killed your young men with a sword, which is the idea that they've been defeated by an enemy. And the whole point here, in fact, these verses seem to sound a lot like the fulfillment of Leviticus 26. So in Leviticus 26, he says, if you won't obey, all these bad things are going to happen. Now God says, I did all these bad things to you. And then there is that refrain. Did you hear it over and over again? Yet you did not return to me. God wanted the people who were in these situations, not just to die. He wanted them to realize their plight and turn back to God. That was the point. That was the goal. So I want to say in answer to this question, yes, it is possible that God uses plagues, but, and it's possible that what we're observing right now is an act of judgment. That is possible. But there are a couple of issues that I have with determining that. The first is this. 
In God's judgments, it is often true that innocent people suffer along with guilty people. So just think about what we've read in the Old Testament and some of the things that we have mentioned, but also there are other examples. Think of the wars where it's not just evil people that die in the war. Think of the captivities in Babylon and Assyria. Think of the death of the firstborn in Egypt where it it doesn't appear that these children have done anything wrong and yet innocent people are suffering and dying. So in the judgment, it's really difficult to distinguish. In the absence of any revelation from God, God doesn't say, here's who I'm punishing. In the absence of that, it's really hard to say, well, this is the one who's guilty and who's being punished since after all, everybody suffers together. So because of that, It's really difficult to say, yes, this is definitely God's judgment. He hasn't said it, and we can't look at it and say, well, what is it judgment for or judgment against? But mainly, the main objection I have to this idea of painting the coronavirus and all of this that we're dealing with as judgment from God is that the Bible warns us against assuming that events we observe are judgment. Don't assume that God is judging just because something happens. There are some people in the Bible, who work on that assumption. They work on the assumption that if something bad is happening, God must be judging and punishing. But they're not the kind of people that we want to emulate. They are Job's friends. This is Job 4 and verse 7. It says, remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. So I want you to see what they're doing. They're reverse engineering. They're saying, okay, who that was innocent ever perished? Now the truth is, lots of innocent people perish. But they are saying, if you are suffering, Job, and generally the rule of life is suffering is a punishment for evil, then we have to assume you've done evil and you're being punished. So if you've been cut off or you're perishing or you're reaping trouble, you must have done something. And if you know anything about the book of Job, you know that they persist in that view. In fact, they intensify in it to the point that God ultimately says, you have not spoken about me what is right. They had basically said that Job had done wrong and that God was punishing for his wrong. So there is a danger here that we're going to go too far and say that, yes, God is responsible for this when, in fact, God is not responsible for it, or at least it's not directly an act of judgment or punishment. Uh, Another example is in John 9, where uh, Jesus is with some of his disciples, and it says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, John 9, 1 to 3. So they see a man who is blind from birth. So He had not lived long enough to do anything wrong. And so his blindness, the idea of his blindness being a punishment for sin, well, well, that's difficult because he didn't really have an opportunity to sin. Is it something where his parents sinned and now he came out blind as a result of their sin? Whatever it is, they are assuming if someone has suffered, there has to be a judgment. It has to be judgment on somebody's sin. We're just not sure whose. And Jesus says specifically, no, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In fact, Jesus doesn't really give an an origin or a cause for this. He just says, you're barking up the wrong tree. That's not the thing to assume about the situation. But the closest parallel I have to 
uh, the situation that we're in now is Luke chapter 13. Uh, The closest parallel to, to how we interpret a tragedy or an event like what we're going through right now. Luke chapter 13. So what happens in Luke 13 is that two awful tragedies have occurred. And the people who are around Jesus ask him about them, and they want his comments on them. And Jesus takes this moment, because of course he knows what they're thinking, to correct this assumption that everything that happens in life is a judgment from God. Uh, Luke 13 and verse 1, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So you've got two events. One of them is where Pilate seems to have just killed some Galileans and then put their blood with the blood of their sacrifices, which is is disgusting and brutal. And Jesus says, do you think that this happened because they're bad? They're worse than all the other sinners. And then he says in verse 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And then there's another event where a tower fell, verse 4, and killed a bunch of people. And he says, do you think they were worse sinners? Did towers fall on people as judgment from God? And Jesus himself says no. But I want you to notice this. This is not just about causes. What he then says is, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. In other words, don't just sit here thinking about those people. And boy, that sure is awful. What happened to them? Scary for them. Sad for them. Oh, I wonder how bad they were. I wonder if they deserved it. He said, instead, think about yourselves and take the lesson to heart. Unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. So, to answer the question... Is it possible? Yes, it is possible. But in the absence of revelation from God, without God saying, here is what I'm doing with coronavirus, I believe we just have to be agnostic about it. That is to say, I'm just not sure of the cause in terms of theological things. Uh, We had a very similar situation to this a few years back uh, when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. And I remember at the time, there were a number of prominent uh, preachers and religious figures who said that uh, this was judgment from God on the city of New Orleans uh, for immorality. It's a strange thing to me to be able to say in light of what we've just read because we don't have any word from God about that. God hasn't said, this is what I'm doing. And then you have to ask the question, well, who exactly is being punished? Which sins are so terrible that they're worthy of punishment? And, And how do we distinguish those from each other in the absence of revelation? I simply think that we can't do that. But let's not lose the focus here. When Amos speaks to the people of God, and God says, I did all these things, and yet you have not returned to me. He says, whatever the situation, let that unrest drive you to me. Or Jesus says, instead of worrying about causes and who did what, let that be focusing your attention on your need to repent. So it seems to me that our time is better spent not in saying, well, what is God doing? Is God sending this? Our time is better spent in saying, how is my relationship with God? Am I right with God? All right, so that's question number one. Second question. 
Uh, does Matthew 18 and verse 20 refer to the number of people that we need to worship? Let's go to Matthew 18. So this is a different kind of question uh, that, that stems from the fact that we have some differences in our worship now than what we typically have. And as a result of the, the virus and the, the orders that have been given and the, the danger that faces us about communication and all of that, we, we have these new kind of ways of doing things. And because of that, uh, this verse has come up in some of that connection uh, about whether or not when we worship, uh, what exactly constitutes worship and what exactly does it mean to gather to worship and that sort of thing. So this is the question. Uh, in Matthew 18, verse 20, this verse is often cited in the connection to do with worship. So the question is, does that have anything to do with worship? Matthew 18 and verse 20 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus is speaking here. So I am there where two or three are gathered in my name. Now, contextually, uh, this verse has to do with correction and sin in the community, within a Christian, excuse me, a Christian community. So if you back up to verse 15, in verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So you see the, the escalation of the process. He says, if your brother sins against you, go talk to him. And if he repents, you won your brother back. But if he won't listen to you, he says specifically, this is verse uh, 16, Take one or two others along with you that by every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if he won't hear the two or three witnesses, the you plus one or two more, then he says, tell it to the church. And the idea there is that the church then is going to reach out to him and try to work with him and convince him. But if he refuses to hear the church, he says, treat him as a sinner. Now I want you to notice that in verse 16 where he talks about two or three witnesses, that's actually a quotation from the, the Old Testament where the idea of how we establish evidence in a court case is on the basis of two or three witnesses. So we want to be sure in these situations that there are people there who are present with information that's relevant to what has happened and that are there to try to reach this brother who is living in sin, refusing to come out of it. So verse 18 Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus comments on this. I think he's especially commenting on the last part, the part where he says, if he refuses to hear you, let him be to you like a Gentile and a tax collector. We have to make decisions sometimes about whether a brother is living right. And sometimes those decisions are hard, and sometimes those decisions are ultimately that we have to treat someone as if they're not living right. And that's a, that's a difficult thing. I think what Jesus is saying in verse 18 is, God is with you when you make those decisions. God's with you. Now, that does not mean, please hear me well, that does not mean that suddenly we as a church or even as a small group have legislative powers. Some people read verse 18 and they think that. They think that what verse 18 means is whatever we agree on is what God is suddenly going to say. That's not what Jesus is saying. No one has that authority it is instead to say, these decisions, even when they're hard, 
reflect the will of God. God is with you, so don't be discouraged just because this is a difficult situation. Then verse 19, Jesus says, again I say to you, which to me implies that he's kind of elaborating on that last idea. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So when disciples agree that there is a problem here, God listens. Why? Why? Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Where two or three are gathered. So that goes back. The two or three goes back to verse 16. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So Jesus is with you. When you go to work with someone to convince them to come out of their sin, to make peace, to bring someone back into the fold, Jesus says, there I am among you. I'm with you. I don't know if you've ever done that kind of work. The kind of work where you have to reach out to a brother. Sometimes he doesn't want to talk to you. He's not interested. And sometimes you have to have meetings with them that are really challenging. And if you've ever done that, you know how gut-wrenching it is and how it keeps you awake at night and how you doubt yourself and you worry if you're doing it right and you sweat it and you exhaust all the avenues and you say, I just don't know if we should be more patient, if we should wait longer. And in all of that, there is such a, a yearning, a groaning within us. And Jesus says, I am with you. So the focus of these verses is to get disciples to trust one another and to trust Jesus rather than to worry about numbers. And I think that's the reason he says where two or three are gathered. Even though you only have this little group of witnesses, you only have a small group that are agreeing on these things in verse 19. Even though you're just a few, numbers don't stop Jesus and numbers don't determine what's right. So you keep doing the right thing. So in answer to the question, does Matthew 18, 20 refer to the number of people we need for worship? The idea here is, is that some people take that verse and say, well, that, that's sort of like a quorum for worship. We've got enough here that we can actually worship now. Uh, the number of people that's necessary to have a worship service. I say, no, that's not what the verse is addressing. It is addressing church discipline. In fact, it's amazing to me. Sometimes people will use this verse to avoid seeking out brethren to worship with. So that we could say, well, we don't need anybody else. We can just do our own thing because after all, where two or three are gathered, Jesus is there. Now that is obviously not Jesus' point. Whatever you say about the context, Jesus is not saying, all right, good, now you don't need your brothers anymore. That's not the point. But I do want to say this. Before we leave this verse, I do think there's a principle here. Something that is, while not necessarily about worship here, I think that this idea that where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them, just means that we don't need numbers to have the approval and the presence of Jesus. That Jesus is saying, I'm not restricted by how many of you there are or aren't. I want you to go with me to John chapter 4. John 4, because if we're going to talk about worship, I think John 4 is a good place to think about that in terms of worship. John 4 and verse 21. <coughs> John 4 and verse 21, Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. 
She asks him a question about uh, where worship should take place, whether it's Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. In, in John 4, 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus specifies that worship is not about a place. Now she's asking, do we do it on this mountain or this mountain? And he says specifically in uh, verse 21, the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, it won't be about a place, but about a manner in spirit and truth, verse 23 and 24. So that's different. That's different from the law of Moses where worship had to be in a certain place. You had certain sacrifices and feasts that needed to be observed in certain ways at certain times and in certain places. But Christians don't have to be in a certain place to worship God. Now, Christians in New Testament times did gather together to worship. I'm thinking particularly of the idea in Acts 20 and verse 7, 1 Corinthians 11, gathering together for the Lord's Supper. But there are other acts of worship that are generic and seem to me to be appropriate in a group of gathering and outside it. Things like praying or singing or giving or fasting or meditating or serving or study. These are things that, that we can do wherever we are. So this question seems to me to be more relevant just because of where we are in time right now uh, with the way this, the worship services have sort of been suspended, at least in terms of us being able to be together in our building. So it seems to me and sometimes we are unable to join together to worship. I think it's important to say unable is different from unwilling. Uh, unable is different from unconcerned. And in circumstances like ours, we do have some personal judgment we have to make. So uh, the question that I'm, I'm kind of getting around here is, do we take the Lord's Supper in our separate homes? Uh, because this is an opportunity we have to do that. We're separated, but we're able to kind of have a guided Lord's Supper here at the building. Or do we just say, you know what, we can't gather right now, so we'll wait until we can all take it together. Well, I don't presume to make that call for you. That's a call that all of us are going to have to make based on our own conscience and our own understanding of Scripture. I will say this about the Lord's Supper issue. I think I've told you guys before, that I had a period in my life where I spent about two months in Europe. And uh, part of it, I was in a study abroad program, and part of it, I was traveling. And during that time, I was only able to worship um, with other Christians a couple of times, maybe three or four times in those two months. And I have to say, it was hugely discouraging and weakening for me. I would not recommend it to anyone. Uh, particularly that part where I did not take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is important to me because it's a time of evaluation and reflection for me. So if some people decide, you know what, we need to do this, this is something that the Lord expects, and we're going to do it in our homes because we're unable to meet, that's their judgment. And if some decide, well, we'll wait until we can gather again and take it, that's their judgment. But my comment is that Matthew 18, 20 only applies to those situations in a principal way. It certainly is not what Jesus is talking about. 
that we don't have to have numbers to have the approval and presence of Jesus. So make those decisions. And if you want to talk to me more about opinions and things about that, I'm happy to do that. Uh, but I don't think Matthew 18:20 is the verse that uh, would settle that issue by any stretch. All right, the third question that I have received is, uh, does canceling or altering services mean we are obeying man over God? So the, the passage that's referred to here is in Acts chapter 5. Acts 5. I'm going to be reading in Acts 5 and verse 27, where the apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin council. This is the second time. Uh, The first time some of them came, and now all of them have come. Uh, Acts 5 and verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. So we ought to obey God rather than man. And, and that is a, a statement, it's a principal statement that is a, a very important and notable one. We, we usually talk about it this way. We'll talk about the submission that we have. We have layers of submission. But in this idea, it's that we submit to the government with this exception, with the exception that when God and man come into conflict, we ought to obey God rather than man. So contextually, what's happening here is that the leaders are threatening them not to preach in Jesus' name anymore. Quit preaching. That's what we would call government persecution. They're being singled out because of what they're teaching and preaching and told to stop. And so Peter says, no, we're not going to stop. We're going to obey God who's called on us to do this rather than man. So the question is, does that passage and that principle apply to our current situation? meaning the situation in which the government has requested or given guidelines about how many of us are together uh, and that uh, at at this point my understanding is that we're not supposed to gather in groups of more than 10. And that is the, the request given by our government. Well, it seems to me, and this is my answer to the question, that what's happening to our services for the moment is actually quite different. Uh, the government, and my understanding is it's happened on three levels, our city government, and our state government and our national government has given us guidelines. Those guidelines are not about our preaching and teaching. Uh, No one has told me or anyone in this group, as far as I know, to stop preaching or teaching or following Jesus. Uh, That's not really the issue. What's happening here is that the government is interested in stopping a deadly virus. This is a national crisis, and we are not being singled out because of what we teach and believe. We are just being told not to gather just as all Americans and many nations across the world are being told not to gather in a way that can easily spread the virus. Now, in addition to that, our elders also have to think about our group and about our health. They have to answer the question, how will meeting together affect our people? I think that one tool here that may be easily overlooked is that we need to remember that we are tremendously blessed to live in a time and in a place, and really, even that we already have a lot of the tools that we need to easily do what we're doing tonight, where we're able to have somewhat of a Bible study together, even though we're not together. Not only that, but we can check on each other and build each other up and be praying for each other and have near constant communication. In fact, sometimes it's a little too much, isn't it? Where we can communicate with one another even though we're physically separated. I I can only imagine, can you imagine 
how New Testament Christians would have liked to have our technology, to be able to, to communicate in that way and to teach in the ways we can teach and to have exposure to people in the gospel, sometimes without even being physically present. I think that they, their minds would be blown if they knew what we are capable of doing in terms of our technology. So if we have ways that we can continue to worship and serve Jesus and stay connected while at the same time respecting the government, while at the same time protecting our people from sickness, while at the same time protecting our neighbors who may not be believers but who can still get a disease just as well as anyone else, and we can do all of those things at once, it certainly seems to me like the best choice. And so instead of framing that as, well, man is telling us to do something and is, is sort of telling us, uh, trying to overrule God, it seems to me that there are ways that we can accomplish what God is, hoping, uh, God is expecting from us while at the same time uh, acknowledging all those other needs and concerns. Uh, let's go over to Hebrews chapter 10. While we're talking about this, uh, someone's probably going to bring up Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, where we sort of have the expectations of God about how his people are going to gather together. And uh, I do think it's important for us to remember this too. Someone's going to ask, uh, are we neglecting or forsaking the assembling of ourselves together uh, because of this crisis? Are we somehow violating God's will uh, by not meeting uh, for at least the time until this, uh, this scare, this concern is passed? Hebrews 10 and verse 24 It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So someone asks, are we neglecting or forsaking uh, our meeting together? And I believe the answer to that is no. I think what's being described here is a personal practice of neglecting or forsaking. Uh, Neglecting or forsaking is a choice to abandon the assembly, to not come anymore. And that is true. He says specifically here that that's a habit or a manner of some, that sometimes we can get into the habit of habitually missing or neglecting uh, our brothers and sisters and not coming together. So what the Hebrew writer is saying is actually that being together is important because we encourage each other. That's still true. Nothing about that has changed just because we're unable to meet at the moment. So it seems to me that instead of reading verse 25 as the major problem here, that we need to read verse 24, specifically, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's still something we can do even when we're unable to meet temporarily And then when we are again able to meet, we can continue to not neglect to meet ourselves together as the habit of some is, but we can encourage one another. So I want to say this, and and the elders didn't ask me to say this. This is just my talking and answering this question. Our elders are very serious about the spiritual expectations, what God expects of us, and the spiritual health that we have here. Our elders are also very aware of the practical realities. And I think we have to appreciate the fact that they balance two things. That they balance what God expects and demands from us and the practical realities of sickness and how things spread and what the government expects. All of these things have to be in balance. 
They have the right and the duty to protect this flock and to make wise choices for them. And that's what they've done. So they are not saying we bow the knee to the government over God. They're not saying we don't ever want to meet anymore. We're tired of this. You know, this is not working out for us. We want to try new things. Uh, Instead, this is something that is temporary while this uh, issue plays out. You may disagree with their decisions. Don't worry, that's not the first time that's happened. People often do, but they still have the charge over this local church. I will say this. A better course is to support them when they make choices in the best interest of the flock. A better course is to say, well, we're unable to meet right now, so what can we do? How can I encourage? Who am I thinking about to stir up, to encourage, to love and good works? How can I be more loving to the people that I don't see as often, but I can still communicate with regularly? And I really want to encourage this group. As we are apart, we cannot lose touch with each other. We've got to make special efforts to do the things that normally we would be able to do in a a meeting because we are not going to be able to see each other for the time being. So it's likely, in my view, that the time is going to come when these restrictions will be lifted, the threat of this will have passed, and we'll go back to our practice of regular worshiping and meeting. I don't know about you. I kind of think it will be different. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, And it seems to me that sometimes there are blessings like this that we take for granted. I think that we will value all the more the ability we have to sit down and take the Lord's Supper together. And I think we'll value all the more the ability to shake hands with each other, which I don't think I've shaken anybody's hand in quite a while. And I think we'll value all the more the fact that we can see one another and read each other's facial expressions, that we can sit down across from one another in a Bible study, that we can encourage one another. I do want to say, remember your brothers and sisters and remember how many things we have in this local church that are tools for you to stay connected to God even though we're not able to meet with the same frequency we'd like. Uh, Remember that we still have the daily devotionals that we're sending out, and they're available in a podcast form too. Remember to be in prayer for each other, to be in prayer for our nation and its leaders, to be in prayer for those who are sick. We have a number in our group who are sick, and to be thoughtful of one another. But just because we have to suspend services temporarily does not mean that we obey man over God, nor does it mean that we've forgotten God's expectations of us and our need to serve him and to encourage one another. Let's go to God in prayer, and we'll be done for tonight. Oh God, our Father, we thank you so much. We're so grateful that we're able to see another day. We're thankful for one another and the bond that we have because of what you've done for us in Christ. We're thankful for this local church, that you brought us together here, and that you made us a family. We're thankful that we can encourage one another, and that others can encourage us. Father, we are mindful of all of those who are suffering, whose worlds are upended right now, those who are losing jobs, those who are sick and are struggling to recover, for those who are stuck at home, unable to do the things that they normally would. And Father, I pray that you'll be with each one of us. I pray for strength, 
so that we can endure the difficulties that we're facing. I pray that you'll give us the focus that we need to stay connected with you, to stay strong in your word. Help us to make choices that are going to bless us by renewing our thinking. Help us to serve others. Help us to reach out. Father, I pray that you'll be with those who are in charge in our nation and nations all around the world who are working to protect people's health. I ask a blessing on them and give them wisdom so that they will continue to watch out for us. Father, we thank you most of all for your son and the great act of love and mercy that you showed in sending him despite our sinfulness to set us free from sin and to give us hope of eternal life with you. Help us, Father, to renew ourselves in that hope and to gain strength from the promises that we still hold on to that someday he'll return and take us home. Watch over us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.